Chicago, June 9, 1880. It's the seventh day of the Republican Convention. It's been a week-long, knock-down, drag-out fight between two factions of the Republican Party. The stalwarts who support the status quo and Ulysses S. Grant, Civil War hero and former president. And the half-breeds, reformers who are pushing for Maine Senator James G. Blaine. But a third candidate, a dark horse, is gaining ground. By the end of the day, a popular, reform-minded congressman named James A. Garfield will be the Republican nominee. Garfield's nomination set in motion a series of extraordinary events, kidnappings, corruption, murder, that sent a man most of the country agreed was completely unqualified to be president into the Oval Office. But it's also a story of redemption, and perhaps the most effective letter-writing campaign in history. It's the story of President Chester A. Arthur. Welcome to the first episode of Footnote, a podcast of overlooked history. I'm Emily Gaddick. Let's get started. My name is Joel Goldstein. I'm the Vincent CMO Professor of Law at St. Louis University. Professor Goldstein is an expert on the U.S. Vice Presidency. You may have heard his name in the past few months. He's been called on by everyone from NPR and the New York Times to USA Today to comment on this last election. In modern terms, Chester Arthur uh, is vice president would be inconceivable. We probably never have had a vice president who came to the office, at least on paper, so unprepared to hold national office. The highest position he'd ever held was his uh, collector of customs of the Port of New York. He'd never been elected to any significant office. His whole background was so undistinguished, really. It's true Arthur didn't have much of a career before he became vice president. He'd even been fired from his last job as collector of customs a few years earlier during a corruption investigation. But he did have a very powerful friend and patron, Senator Roscoe Conkling. Conkling represented New York State and was good friends with Ulysses S. Grant. More importantly, he was the ruthless and efficient boss of the New York Republican Party. It was Conkling who decided who ran for office in New York, who got which job, and how much you owed him for it. And he wasn't pleased that Garfield, a former college professor from Ohio who didn't owe him anything, was the Republican candidate. Garfield then needed to placate the Conkling wing of the party, what was called the stalwarts, and he needed to appeal to New York for its electoral votes. It was one of the very few swing states, and he needed the support of New York. Uh, his people went to uh, New York and said, look, uh, whoever you pick, we in Ohio will support. And that's what happened. Uh, somebody went to Arthur and said, would you like to be vice president? And Arthur said, sure. He'd never imagined that he would achieve such a great honor. And Arthur uh, became Garfield's running mate. So Arthur ended up as vice presidential pick, a living olive branch between the two rival factions of the party. After the convention, he and Garfield went their separate ways. Garfield went back to his farm in Ohio. Arthur headed back to New York City, where he raised money and got out the vote for the Garfield ticket, just like a good vice president should. 
It's likely that without Arthur, Garfield may not have become president at all. The election was the closest in U.S. history, with a margin of only a few thousand votes out of over nine million votes cast. But despite Arthur's crucial help getting his boss into office, no one doubted he remained Roscoe Conkling's man. Until his inauguration, Arthur actually lived in Conkling's house. Not only that, but Conkling sent Arthur to drag Republicans who had agreed to serve in Garfield's cabinet out of bed and back to Conkling. Conkling would yell until they agreed to send a letter to Garfield with their polite regrets. Almost from the first day Arthur became vice president, he was pressuring Garfield to give patronage jobs and government positions to Conkling and other stalwarts. This while the president was fighting to reform the civil service and weaken the patronage system. Newspaper articles popped up about how worrying it was that Arthur was only a heartbeat away from the presidency. But it was in the way that some Democrats used to grumble about Dick Cheney. The thought of him becoming president was terrible, but it wasn't really going to happen. The president was a hale and hearty war hero in his late 40s, the type of guy who did backflips and wrestled with his teenage sons. And although Lincoln's assassination was just 16 years before, it was seen as a tragedy that could have only happened in wartime. But on July 2nd, 1881, Garfield was shot in Washington, D.C.'s Union Station, on his way to a vacation on the Jersey Shore. The man who shot him, Charles Gateau, declared that he was a stalwart of stalwarts and that Chester Arthur should be grateful. The attack wasn't fatal, but the wound quickly became infected when doctors stuck their hands in Garfield's back, looking for the bullet. It took him nearly three months to die. It really was a presidential succession nightmare because there were no clear provisions for how to handle presidential disability uh, up until 67 when the 25th Amendment was ratified. So um, there, were, there was no clear procedures as to what should be done. Not only were there no rules on what the vice president should do, Arthur was under a cloud of suspicion. It eventually became clear that Gateau was insane, but for weeks after the shooting, people suspected that Arthur, or if not Arthur, his friend Conkling, was behind the attack. Arthur, by all accounts, was devastated. For nearly two months, he stayed home with the blinds drawn. New rumors began to swirl that Arthur had poisoned himself in despair over the president's condition. And then he received an extraordinary letter from a stranger. Suddenly, Chester A. Arthur gets a letter from this woman named Julia Sand. That's Alex Wolcott. He's a writer and amateur historian who's created a website dedicated to the correspondence between Arthur and Julia Sand. The first letter, the one he's talking about, is actually pretty harsh at the beginning. Sand starts out by saying, quote, The hours of Garfield's life are numbered. Before this meets your eye, you may be president. The people are bowed in grief, but do you realize it? not so much because he is dying, as because you are his successor. But she keeps going. She starts talking to him about how much faith she has in him and how much she hopes that he does not turn out to be 
the person that everyone says he is, how much she hopes that he can reform himself, that he can become a better person, that he can be the great president that the country needs. For a man despised by his countrymen as incompetent, corrupt, and a possible murderer, it must have been a powerful thing to find that there was at least one person who believed in him. It's a very sort of beautiful and, and kind of poetic letter. And that sort of started what turned out to be a three or four year correspondence between the two of them. Nowadays, it seems remarkable that somebody could initiate and sustain this sort of correspondence um, with the president, that somebody like Julia Sand could write these letters and that they could get through to the president. But President Arthur apparently uh, received and read and kept um, a couple of dozen of, of letters that she sent. And what was striking was uh, the way in which she wrote to him. I mean, she felt absolutely no hesitation about uh, giving him advice and in a very direct and um, critical way. So who was this woman? We don't actually know a lot about her. She was the daughter of a German immigrant. Uh, she lived in Brooklyn. She lived with her family. She was a spinster. We know she has a brother who died in the Civil War. She was definitely educated. She read French. Um, you know, a lot of this stuff comes from the letters that she wrote to Arthur where she told him about her life. Exactly why she chose to write to Arthur is one of those great mysteries. Whatever the reason, she continued to write to him about her life, about what she heard of him from newspapers, and above all, with advice. Sand wrote Arthur at least 23 letters during his time in Washington. They're sitting in the Library of Congress right now as part of the Chester Allen Arthur Papers, some of the very few personal documents Arthur didn't burn shortly before he died. Her advice could be specific. She urged him to keep Conkling's rival James Blaine as Secretary of State, for example, and teased him about rumors he was courting a young lady from New York. Her message was always consistent. Turn his back on his old ways, and there is still time to become a better man. There's no doubt that Arthur changed when he became president. He still threw the extravagant dinner parties he had been known for in New York, with multiple courses and plenty of wine. And he was something of a dandy, dressing in the latest fashions. But when his old friend Conkling turned up not long after the inauguration and asked Arthur for a cabinet position, Arthur turned Conkling down. The two men never spoke again. He vetoed pork barrel projects and pursued practical works like strengthening America's Navy. And he signed a civil service bill that essentially guaranteed there would never be another Chester A. Arthur. He ended up signing the, uh, the Pendleton bill, which called for reform of, of some of the civil service, removing some positions from political patronage, providing that people would be, in effect, servants of the public, not servants of one party or the other and also ending this practice that Arthur had really been a main practitioner of, of assessing um, public servants' campaign contributions uh, in order to, to uh, stay in office. By the end of Arthur's term, journalist Alexander McClure wrote, 
No man ever entered the presidency so profoundly and widely distrusted as Chester Allen Arthur, and no one ever retired more generally respected alike by political friend and foe. Even Mark Twain declared it would be hard to better President Arthur's administration. Of course, the mystery is why Arthur changed so radically. It's hard to know what the cause and effect is. I mean, certainly some of the things that she suggested in her first letter to him, she said uh, in so many words, you need to clean up your act. Nobody has high expectations for you. I mean, the, the course that he ended up following was consistent with that uh, admonishment. Wouldn't have been difficult for him to figure that out on his own, that he needed to transcend his past and to show people that he was a much more serious, substantial person than um, his reputation and that his might have indicated. But the fact that he kept the letters, uh, even after he had destroyed a lot of his papers, um, it, you know, is suggestive that those letters had, had some significance to him. Maybe the letters changed his mind. Perhaps seeing the president assassinated woke his conscience. But it is clear that he had a choice. He could have used the presidency to enrich himself, as he did when he was collector of customs in New York City. He could have simply stepped down, citing his failing health and let Congress sort out who was in charge. But he stayed in office and followed the advice he received from Sand in her letters, to negotiate with rivals and turn his back on his old friends. And on August 20th, 1882, he went to visit Sand at her home in Brooklyn. She was so overwhelmed, she hid behind a curtain. Despite her embarrassment about the visit, Sand kept writing to Arthur, comparing him to Henry V and Abraham Lincoln. No one else went quite that far. As Professor Goldstein put it, Arthur's not exactly in the running for a spot on Mount Rushmore. But there may never be another president like him. He entered office an unelected, unprepared, distrusted political hack. But he decided to be a better person and left a respected leader. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Cause his soul keeps marching on. Special thanks to Joel Goldstein and Alex Wolcott for speaking with me, and to Sarah Fox for the Chester A. Arthur illustration on the Footnote website. You can find Footnote on the web at footnotepodcast.com and on iTunes under podcasts. And if you think Julia Sand may have played an important role in U.S. history, I urge you to talk with your friendly local Wikipedia editor. Alex Wolcott has been trying to get a Wikipedia entry on the correspondence between Julia and Chester without success. John Brown's body lies a moldering in his grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in his grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in his grave, but his soul keeps marching on.